Now turn with me, please, if you would, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be thinking particularly about verses 15 through 20 this morning, but we'll read, I'll begin reading in verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter there at verse 23. And as you're turning there, well, here we are. How good it is for us to be here in Oak Ridge at last. Lots of life has happened since our candidating weekend in March, all sorts of uh, toils and snares even in the past week, but we're glad to be here with you all. And this is now home. And we look forward to laboring with you for many, many years to come as we herald the name and the good news of Jesus Christ from this pulpit and in this community and throughout East Tennessee. Some of you may know the story of John Calvin, how he was preaching through the Psalms in Geneva, Switzerland, in 1538. And he got on the bad side of the city council, the magistrates, because of issues surrounding the Lord's Supper. Uh, And they essentially sent him into exile for three years. Well, when he returned three years later in September of 1541, in his first Lord's Day sermon, he resumed his exposition of scripture at the very next verse where he had left off three years prior before being exiled. Well, it's not been three years. It's only been since March. And you all hardly have sent me off into exile. But back in March, we left off at Ephesians 1, verse 14. And I'd like to continue right where we left off together this morning at Ephesians 1, verse 15. So let's read this passage of scripture and then we'll pray And ask for God's help. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 15. Hear now God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Thus far, God's word to us this day. Would you pray with me, please, brothers and sisters? Lord, we do thank you for this inspired and inerrant word to your church that we may clearly know your will, that you've not left us wandering or grasping in the dark, but you've given us a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So give us now your Holy Spirit's ministry, we ask, that we might have illumination and understanding of all that we study this day. For we ask this in our Savior's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, friends, I've been very eager to go through this series on Ephesians with you. And like any other sermon series, we're going to go through this book expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But as we're doing so, it's one series of several that I hope to do over the coming months and years that's that's part of a larger goal that I have in mind, and that is to give attention to those areas where in the wider church we have found her to be weakest, especially over these last couple of years. You know, the the year 2020, in many ways, exposed the fault lines in the North American church. It didn't create them, it exposed them. 
Now, I've not rehearsed the statistics in depth from the pulpit here. We may do that later on, but you should at least be aware of the Ligonier Ministries surveys that are out there. I think they call it the State of Theology or the State of the Church surveys, and they tell us how poorly equipped, uh, doctrinally speaking, so many Christians are in the North American church. All sorts of unbiblical and ungodly beliefs are held by many self-professed Bible-believing evangelicals. These are not just secular folks in the North American society and some of these statistics within these surveys. These are self-described Bible-believing evangelicals who up to one-third of them believe that there are multiple paths to the Father beyond Jesus Christ. And really, in my estimation, many issues boil down to a misunderstanding of two major doctrines, namely the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the church. In large part, I dare suggest that the North American church really doesn't understand who Christ is as he's presented to us in Holy Scripture. And we don't understand what the church is and how she's supposed to function or what her priorities are. Now, happily, I do think, and I'm not saying this to be nice, but I'm genuinely persuaded that our congregation is the exception in many ways. But for many, many congregations in North America, the situation is not good. And so, as we look to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's a marvelous epistle that blends all kinds of doctrine into six short chapters, including massively important teaching on the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the church, which we so desperately need to understand, because the fact is, for much of the church, we don't understand who we are or what we're supposed to be, and many of our brothers and sisters don't really understand who Christ is in relation to us. But you know, lest we be deceived and think that this is a peculiar and unique frustration to our day and age, this problem is not terribly new. R.C. Sproul, decades ago, decades ago, I believe in the early 70s, he said this, the problem with the church today is that we don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. If we could get that one thing straightened out, oh, what a profound and marvelous difference it would make. And you know, centuries before Sproul, John Calvin, again, he said much the same thing in the opening sentences of his magnum opus. Many of you probably know it. The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Calvin wrote, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. So friends, if we're going to live life together as God's people, If we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, we must rightly understand who God is and who we are in relation to his holiness and his great majesty. And Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, beautifully helps us to do that very thing. The greatest need of the church is the knowledge of God, an intimate acquaintance with the God of glory and grace, an awareness of his presence and his sovereignty and his power and his mercy And his love, that's one of our great needs, perhaps even the greatest need. And so as we turn our attention to Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 20, we're considering a prayer of the Apostle Paul that focuses directly on that vital necessity. We are thinking about our need as fallible, frail, yet redeemed creatures. And Paul is praying about our need to know the living God. And so I want us to look at this prayer under two headings, two simple headings this morning. I can't remember if I heard it in a sermon or if I read it in a commentary, but it was a number of years ago when I was studying this passage, and this was the simple outline, and it benefited me, and I can't really improve upon that general outline, so I thought we'd follow along with it. We'll think first about the pattern 
of prayer that we see here. And then we'll think about the priorities of Paul's prayer. The pattern first, and then the priorities of Paul's prayer. So look, let's look first at the pattern of Paul's prayer. Look at the things that he's modeling for us. Look how he begins there in verse 15. For this reason, Paul writes, because I have heard of your faith, and so on. What is the reason that has moved Paul to pray? And not just for those things that he can see in the Ephesians, actually, but everything that he's been meditating on from verses 3 through 14. You, know, you see what he's been ruminating on, on those first 12 verses. We studied this together a few months ago in the month of March. Remember, it was, uh, verses 3 through 14? Uh, Twelve verses are essentially one long, compound, complex sentence in the Greek where Paul goes on and on and on ruminating on God's infinite sovereignty and his electing love, how his, his choosing to redeem sinners out of the mass of fallen humanity and to do so by means of the cross of his son, Jesus Christ, and the way in which God brings redemption into the experience of sinners when they've been converted by the mighty working of the Holy Spirit. That's the things that Paul, the, the glorious truths of salvation and redemption that Paul's been meditating on in those opening verses. He's been dwelling on a soaring doctrine of divine sovereignty an adoration to a divine sovereign to whom we owe our salvation from first to last. And then he says, essentially, as I paraphrase Paul, as I take in that glorious sight, that landscape of salvation, Emmanuel's land, Emmanuel's country, as I take that all in, I am compelled to pray, says the Apostle Paul at the outset of this section. Now, sometimes we hear scoffers say that if God is sovereign like this, the way you Calvinist and Reformed folks so love to talk about, if he is so sovereign, doesn't that render prayer redundant, unnecessary? Maybe you've entertained such thoughts yourself at various points. Au contraire, says the Apostle Paul. The question I think Paul would be asking of us, quite the opposite, is if God is so sovereign, Beloved brothers and sisters, Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, if God is so sovereign, why do you pray so little and so poorly? After all, the one to whom we speak is the sovereign God who does all things for his good pleasure and glory and whose purpose can never fail. He can do all things. He breathed the cosmos into existence and he gave new life to your dead and sinful heart. Why in the world would you not pray to a God such as this for him to act? Plead his promises. Brothers and sisters, there ought to be a boldness and a confidence in our prayers together. And it comes, that boldness and that confidence comes from a clear knowledge of the sovereignty of God and who he is. For this reason, Paul says in verse 15, because of who God is, because of who I know him to be, I am moved to pray. I can't do anything but else but come to him in dependence and in adoration and in looking for his help and saving aid. Paul prays not in speculation as to maybe this will make a difference based on who God is, maybe it won't. What's the difference anyway? No, Paul prays in light of the truth of who he knows his God to be. What's the point in praying? No, not at all, friends, not at all. Rather, in light of who God is, how can I afford not to pray? In light of who God is, how can I afford not to pray? Notice also 
that as Paul lays out his prayer, he prays mindful of who God is, not simply in that God is sovereign over all, but he prays mindful that God is Trinity, that God is Trinity. Here is, brothers and sisters, practical Trinitarianism. Uh, Last time, you may remember, you may not, that's fine, but the way in which all three persons of the Godhead are at work in securing our salvation. If you let your eyes scan over that, those opening verses in verses 3 through 12, you'll con- you can see that there. The Father at work in electing love. The Son, Jesus Christ, at work in sacrificial love. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, at work in loving us and applying all that Christ has purchased for us and that the Father has ordained for us, his people. And now, not only do we see all three persons of the Godhead securing our salvation, but also we see all three are active in shaping our devotion, in shaping our lived piety, our Christian life. Look at verse 17. Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So here they are, right? Father and Son and Holy Spirit, the Trinity shaping even the life and the language of our very prayers. How often, how often do we fail to pray to God accurately or to worship him appropriately because we fail to think of God rightly? How often do we fail to pray to God accurately or worship him appropriately because we fail to think of God rightly? Right? There's a reason that the Trinity has been called the most fundamental and actually the most devotional of all Christian doctrine. Let me put it another way. If, for instance, I knew that my mother hated kayaking and whitewater rafting, and she does, by the way, if I knew that she hated kayaking and whitewater rafting and she came to visit us sometime and we took her over to Sevierville, Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg, that general area, and I told her, Happy Mother's Day, Mom! I've purchased you an all-day pass to go whitewater rafting in Pigeon Forge. She would be less than pleased. Let's put it that way. She would say to me, Sean, don't you know me at all? Do you even know who I am? You know that I don't enjoy this kind of activity. Why in the world would you do this as an excursion together? Some Mother's Day present this is. Loving someone well, brothers and sisters, involves knowing them rightly. So it is with our friends, so it is with our spouses, so it is with our triune God. Our God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he would have us know him and relate to him in the triunity of his being and worship him knowing who he is and what he's like. He would have us relate to him in light of this knowledge and in light of this truth of who he is. And also notice how profoundly theological Paul's prayer is. Now, for some folks, when they hear words like doctrine and theology, for some folks, as soon as they hear those words, they switch off. Right? Ugh. Here we go again with this esoteric, academic, high-minded, highfalutin, utterly impractical theology again. You might know folks like that. But friends, I beg you, please do not fall into that dreadful line of thinking. If for you, you find theology to be boring... It may be because the one who first presented it to you did a dreadful job. And if that's the case, the fault, the problem, is with the man, not with the theology. If it was presented to you in a dreadful and boring and, and meaningless way, the problem is not with the theology, but rather with its presentation, the presenter. 
Rather, let's look to Scripture to see how Christians should rightly use doctrine and theology. Do you see here? For Paul, theology fuels prayer. Prayer, for Paul, is theology on fire. Thinking correctly about God, thinking doctrinally about God, thinking theologically accurately and precisely about God drives him to adore God and cling to God and cry passionately to his God. Prayer, for the apostle, is theology come to life. Prayer, if I can put it this way, is the main use, certainly one of the main uses, maybe the main use of good theology. If theology, brothers and sisters, snuffs out the fires of joy and devotion in your heart, if theology puts a damper on joy and adoration, you're not doing it rightly. Doctrine is for doxology. It's for praise. I had a mentor often say, I'm not interested in theology that cannot be preached. I like that. And I've often adopted a similar mantra, slightly massaged. I'll often say, I'm not interested in theology that you can't preach or that you cannot sing. That's what theology is for. To fuel our adoration, to fuel our prayers, to fuel our doxology and praise. All orthodox theology should drive us to praise our triune God. That's what it's for in the mind and the heart of the Apostle Paul. That's what it ought to be in our minds and hearts as well, brethren. And then notice where Paul lingers in his train of thought. So often in our own prayers, we think, right, this is who God is in all of his might and all of his majesty. This is who he is in all of his power and his omnipotence and his omniscience. Therefore, O Lord, please do this thing that I need. You're great. You're powerful. You're able. Please, therefore, Lord, I ask, do this thing. And that's fine. And it has its place. Of course. Of course it does. But do notice that Paul doesn't move there right away. He lingers for a while. And where does he linger first? Thanksgiving. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith, Ephesian Christians, in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. It's as if Paul were saying, Ephesian believers, I have heard of your faith, In the Lord Jesus, I've heard of your love for all the saints, for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. God has done a mighty work in your heart. This is is not abstract doctrine, Paul says to them, far removed from the real lives of people on the ground. No, this truth, this theological reality has taken root in you. It has affected you. It has transformed you. This reality is changing you from the inside out. And it causes me to praise God when I see that work in your lives. Friends, think of it like this. As you sit here this morning, as you look around this room, there are testimonies of God's grace sitting in every pew, in every chair. Now, we're just arriving here. We're just getting settled in and getting to know some of you. So I certainly don't know all of your stories. I don't know all the things that you've endured or gone through, what the Lord has done in your lives. But I dare say many of you do know those stories of the people sitting near you in this room the trials that your brethren have endured, the sore and searing wounds that they have endured in many cases. You know the stories of the joys that the Lord has brought into their lives and the the causes 
for adoration that the Lord has given unto them. You know where they've been and where the Lord has brought them. You know that grace has brought them safe thus far, and grace will lead all of us home. Think about what God has done in the lives of your brothers and sisters. How he has brought all of us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. How he has caused us to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word of God. How he's raised his people to new life and has united them to Christ. Think of how he's done that in the unique and individual and collective lives of the people that are here in this worship hall together this morning. And as you think of the grace of God at work in the lives of your friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters, as you ponder what he has done in your own heart, you'll find yourself doing almost naturally what you see Paul doing here. Ponder God's grace active in the lives of his people, and like Paul, you might just find yourself overflowing with thanksgiving to God. Also notice verse 16. I do not cease, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers. Unceasing thankfulness. Persistent prayerfulness. That's what we see Paul modeling. Unceasing thankfulness and persistent prayerfulness. See, see, here's the thing. Prayer is often hard. We can admit it. It's fine. Prayer is often hard. Praying for long, long seasons. Seasons of pain and desperation at times. Seasons where it seems like prayers go unanswered, seasons where you're praying for hearts and circumstances to be changed and they keep on being unchanged. Lord, I've got this family member. Lord, I've got this covenant child who's not walking with you, who's far from the Lord, who has repudiated the things of Christ. Lord, would you change his heart? Lord, would you recapture her heart and bring her back to yourself? And yet, the status quo continues to remain the status quo. We need encouragement, don't we, to keep on praying. And notice that it is his doctrine of God that helps Paul persevere. Do you see that? It's not the strength of his own resolve, nor is it the encouraging experience, right? That all of his prayers are answered immediately. Thank you, Lord, that you answer all my prayers just like that. That's why I can keep on praying. No, he's able to persevere in praying for the Ephesians, not because of anything in them, not because of anything in himself, but because of who he knows God is. That's how Paul keeps on persevering in his prayers. I love how one commentator put it. He said this, The sovereignty of God helps Paul to stay at it, to keep on praying, knowing that the timing of God is perfect, that the power of God is infinite, and the promises of God are true and altogether dependable. And so he's enabled to stay on his knees. Close quote. Friends, does your doctrine of God, knowing who he is, knowing what he is, knowing what he does, does that drive you and keep you in prayer, dear friends? Does your doctrine of God drive you and keep you sustained in prayer before the living God? May it be so. So that's the first thing. The pattern of Paul's prayer. Trinitarian adoration. An unceasing thankfulness and persistent prayerfulness. That's the pattern of his prayer. That's the first thing for us to see. Then secondly, notice the priorities of his prayer. The priorities of his prayer. What is it that Paul's praying about? What seems to be Paul's most important prayer request? And how might that inform our own prayer lives? Well, verse 17. He's praying that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory 
may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He's praying to the Father for a fresh work of the Holy Spirit in the Ephesian church so that they might know him better. He wants them to know God and to know him better. That's his prayer. Right? You, see the, you see the synonyms that he piles up for, for knowledge there, verses 17 and 18? Wisdom and revelation and the eyes of the heart enlightened that you may know. Yes, they already know him. Right? They, they have faith in the Lord Jesus. He's writing to a Christian church after all. They know God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet, there is more for them. And so Paul prays, O oh God, give them the Holy Spirit that they may know you better. They may know you better. I love how another commentator puts it. He writes, Paul is not praying that all the Ephesians would go to seminary. He's not praying for head knowledge merely. He doesn't want them to become bookish theologues who use jargon to impress no one but themselves. Neither is Paul praying that the church would become a madhouse of mysticism with everyone driven along by merely subjective experience. No, he is praying that God would give them the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, which, by the way, is simply another way to say, lead us into the Bible, lead us into the scriptures. This is the only repository of saving, sanctifying, preserving wisdom and revelation available to us. He wants us to be Bible people. Here's the great mark of an outpouring of the Spirit of Christ upon the church. Close quote. In other words, friends, we pray for spiritual revival to well up in the church. And we'll know that it's happening when we see a great craving and desire for the scriptures. Now, you know, the the word revival can be one of those naughty words in Reformed and Calvinistic circles. And understandably so. The word has been so abused and misused by many Christian predecessors. We hear the word revival and we think of manufactured experiences or emotional manipulation or shallow decisionisms, things like that. But understood rightly, understood rightly, if we employ this word the way many of our Puritan forebears employed this word, it is an entirely appropriate thing. If we use the word revival to mean when the Lord has his way with his people, when God, by the, when God the Holy Spirit applies the truths of his words to our hearts in such a way that it grips us, when our affections for the things of God and our affections for Christ are rekindled, when we find ourselves desirous to live holy lives, when we find the pattern of our lives more and more conformed to the image of Christ, when we are no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but rather transformed by the renewal of our minds, when God the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of his holy word, has his way with his people. This is what the Puritan John Owen would call true revival. Revival is not something we can plan or manufacture, brothers or sisters. It cannot be predetermined. It cannot be pre-scheduled. Biblical revival comes when God moves in his people such that there begins to grow a hunger for the word of God and the things of God. And there's a new sense that the almighty God himself is dealing with us and speaking to our hearts in the preaching of his word. And that's what Paul prays for in the lives of the Ephesians. And that's what the apostle would have us pray for ourselves even in this day. How we need to begin to pray Paul's prayer. 
I'm not a pundit, at least I don't think I'm a pundit, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but if we learned nothing else from the year 2020, did it not show us that the great need of the church is that it would actually be interested in God again? That the church would take God and his word seriously and love it and obey it and put it into practice? What would it look like if God were to visit his people with that kind of ministry of the Holy Spirit? Paul tells us, look at verses 18 and 19 and 20. If God visits us with revival, true revival, biblical revival, not manufactured uh, false shallow decisionism, one commentator says that three things will be impacted especially. Our understanding of the future, our understanding of our identity, and our understanding of our resources. At least those three things will be impacted if God the Holy Spirit visits his people in such a way. Our future, look at verse 18. We will know what is the hope to which he has called us. Hope, in Paul's theology, is not wishful thinking, right? I I hope tomorrow that it doesn't rain, but I just don't know. Uh, I hope that it's not 98 degrees on Wednesday afternoon so we can actually have a bonfire outside, but I just don't know. That's wishful thinking. That's how we tend to use the phrase, hope, not Paul. For Paul and the biblical writers, hope means a guarantee of God's promise, I I may not have it yet. I may not be grasping it in the palm of my hand, but it's coming. Because God promised it. It's as good as here. And one day soon, it will be in my possession. Paul's talked already in verse 11. And again, in verse 14, you have an inheritance, he says, coming to you, Christian. You you don't have it yet, but you will one day. That's how an inheritance works. The guarantor of the inheritance has not yet passed away, but as soon as the guarantor of your inheritance does pass away, you have it. It is legally yours. And in the meantime, you have a guarantee. You have a down payment as proof of the inheritance that awaits you, namely the Holy Spirit who dwells in your hearts. He is your guarantee. Your inheritance, of course, is God. You get God in heaven And eventually the new heavens and the new earth, the life to come and the enjoyment of all the fullness and all the majesty and all the glory and the pleasure of God as you behold it face to face in Jesus Christ. This is what is coming to you. And in the meantime, you have that down payment of the Holy Spirit as your guarantee that while you may not yet possess it in fullness, it is as good as here and good as yours, believer in Christ. Philip Henry was the father of the well-known Bible commentator Matthew Henry, And in his younger days, Philip was engaged to be married to a young Christian woman. Uh, This woman was of significantly higher social standing than he. Uh, He was a commoner, Philip was, Philip Henry. She was essentially an aristocrat. Her parents were concerned about this, and so they asked her, This man, Philip Henry, where has he come from? Uh, To which she replied, I do not know where he has come from, but I know where he is going. That's Paul's point. When God, by his spirit, is at work, by his word, in the lives of his people, they begin to grow in assurance of their destiny, of their security. That's why Paul describes the Holy Spirit in verse 14 as a guarantee, guaranteeing our possession of the inheritance that is to come. So our future, when God visits his people in this way, it affects our sense of understanding of our future, but also our sense of understanding of our identity. Look at verse 18 again. Paul prays that we might have the Spirit and so know what is the hope to which he has called us and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now that's a fascinating phrase. 
Paul's already talked about our inheritance back in verse 11 and back in verse 14, as we've just said. The things that we get, if I can use that, that earthy of a word, the things we get, our inheritance, Christ himself and dwelling in his presence. But here Paul, in verse 18, talks about God's inheritance. God has an inheritance too, it seems. What is it? It's the church. It's redeemed sinners from every nation under heaven. It's you. You are God's inheritance. You are his treasure in whom he delights if today you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9. The Lord's portion is his people. That's the church. God's portion and delight. Now there's a word. In a world that considers you absolutely worthy of mockery and scorn, your ethics are laughable and worthy of derision. In a world that sneers at you for raising your children with a biblical worldview and perhaps even considers you dangerous for instilling the principles of biblical Christianity in them. A society that perhaps even considers you unfit to be parents because of your dangerous and violent and backward values. In a world that hates you, here's your true value, Church of Jesus Christ. When the world derides and scorns you, our triune God considers you his treasure, his portion, his inheritance, and his delight. So our future, our value, and then lastly our resources. When we are visited with God the Holy Spirit in such a way, it affects the way we understand our future, it affects the way we understand our own value, and then finally and very briefly, our resources. Verse 19 Paul prays that we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You see, while governments like to often declare unfunded mandates, you you all know the concept of an unfunded mandate, I'm sure, right? Make this project happen. Uh, We're not allocating any finances or resources for it, but make it happen somehow. There are no unfunded mandates with God. God gives the command, and God provides the power to bring it about. One commentator put it like this. You, Christian, will cross the finish line not because you have the power, not because you have the stamina or the wisdom or the strength, but because the same power that broke the grip of death and raised Jesus Christ to life and seated him at the right hand of glory in heaven, that power is at work to keep you and preserve you and bring you home. These are the resources that God has lavished upon you, child of God. What a God this is whom you serve and who loves you and equips you for all eternity. Oh, brothers and sisters, how we need to pray with the Apostle Paul that God would indeed pour out his spirit upon us and bring true, true revival and that by his word we would slay our sin. And that by his word the lost would be converted. And that by his word we at Covenant Presbyterian Church would honor the name of King Jesus. And that by his word we would indeed know our future and our identity. And his limitless, absolutely limitless resources promised to us. May the Apostle's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 be our prayer. And may our God be pleased to answer it accordingly. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, our God, we do praise you for your work, and we pray, and we praise you for the ministry of your Spirit in our lives. 
O truly, how we pray, revive your work, O Lord, in the midst of the years. Visit your church in renewed power. Wield the sword of your word among us and exercise the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Do this, we pray, by your spirit and for your glory. For we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.